Welcome, y'all, to the Direct Examination Podcast. I'm Amber Fulmer. I'm Dane Phillips. And I'm Joseph Diaz. Amber, nice to have you. Welcome uh, to the uh, show. Thank you. I'm back and I'm ready to roll. My kid has tubes, so I have a life again. (laughs) (laughs) We had a ruptured eardrum, so we just had to make it till yesterday morning, so I'm good. Look, I'm I'm, I'm glad you did. I'm not jealous of uh, what y'all two got going on, but... uh, you know, shout out to you. Ask your fiance, Joseph. Ask her. Hey, look, two and a half weeks. Okay. We're counting down here. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. If you missed our season premiere episode uh, last week, go back and listen to that. That was a uh, fun SEC preview with Chris Paschal of Front Porch Football. Um, we do have a much more serious and much more, um, you know, weighty episode with mm-hmm. three superstars in this. So, Amber, tell us about our guest today. Awesome. Well, y'all, we are really lucky, um, especially because a lot of this podcast is going to resolve, excuse me, revolve around a bunch of events in the current media with the Breonna Taylor case. So without further ado, here are our guests. We have today with us Colin Miller. He's a professor of law at the University of South Carolina School of Law here in Columbia, South Carolina. He's the creator and blog editor of Evidence Prof Blog and one of the co-hosts of the Undisclosed podcast, which is the most successful wrongful conviction podcast in the world with over 300 million downloads. He's a nationally known expert on evidence, criminal law, and criminal procedure, and he's a published author. He can be found on Twitter at Evidence Prof, and the Undisclosed podcast can be found at Undisclosed Pod. We also have with us his two research assistants on the Breonna Taylor case, A.C. Parham and Jasmine Carruthers. Jasmine is a 2L from Greenville, South Carolina, and A.C. is a 3L from Greer, South Carolina. Our three guests today offered pro bono assistance to the lawyers representing Breonna Taylor's family in their suit against the city of Louisville, Kentucky. Breonna Taylor, as y'all might have seen in the media, was murdered earlier this year when Louisville officers in Kentucky broke down the door to her apartment and fatally shot her while executing a late-night, no-knock search warrant. As a result of their work, diligent and research, our guests today have secured from the city of Louisville, they have agreed to pay $12 million to the family of Breonna Taylor for this incident. Thank you all very much for joining us today. Professor Miller, let's start with you. Um, we know by following your Twitter and your uh, podcast that you, you in teaching classes, you're a busy guy. Why get involved with this and why volunteer your services uh, pro bono in this case? Yes. Yeah, so when I first heard about Brianna Taylor's case and saw the injustice and knew the difficulties the family would have in a civil action with qualified immunity and the difficulties of securing judgments against police officers and police-involved shootings, I just thought, let me reach out, let me see if they want any assistance. We can offer free assistance. I have two terrific students who work for me who can do some excellent research. Reached out, they were happy for the offer of help, and it led to this wonderful work over the summer that, as you say, culminated in the city of Louisville paying this $12 million settlement and also making some reforms in the police department. Mm -hmm. Well, where I want to jump in is a lot of people who listen, you know, we have a, a pretty good wide base of people who are our listeners as lawyers, but a lot of them are young lawyers and students. And so a lot of them don't understand how high of a bar that qualified immunity is for law yep. enforcement and ultimately how, Heavy. In, right, in most excessive force cases and these 1983 lawsuits that 
the qualified immunity is that that hurdle that's just too high for many many litigants, many plaintiffs uh, to to cross. And so, through your research, could you go into qualified immunity a little bit and what you've been able, what, how y'all were able to assist with that? Because I know that's that's you know kind of the cornerstone of some of the, the issues that prevent people from being able to really seek a remedy or the justice they need in in civil litigation. Yeah, so one qualified immunity basically says, unless there was a prior case with this exact same fact pattern, a police officer can't be held liable for misconduct. And so here, the difficulty is there are plenty of cases where a search warrant goes wrong and shots are fired and someone is hurt or killed and the plaintiff can't recover. But we were able to find this line of cases where if the officer lies on the application for the search warrant, that allows for recovery. And here in this case, the reason they got this no-knock warrant was they claimed the ex-boyfriend was getting mail and specifically drugs delivered to Brianna Taylor's apartment after they had broken up. And the postal inspector said, that's a lie. That was made up. In fact, we told them that he wasn't receiving packages there. And so that was sort of the hook that essentially allowed for this settlement to occur. Did you all know that going in or was that through digging, um, you know, through all of the fact? Because I, I I feel like as as somebody from a distance, I knew generally the facts of the case, but there had to be something where y'all are sifting and maybe we can bring in AC and Jasmine at this point, where you all are sifting through this information. I mean, are you going through subpoena? Are you doing subpoenas? Are you, you know, files? Like, how is this practically working with y'all and doing it during COVID? So for me, um, doing all this research during COVID really created a, a difficult, um, a, a unique challenge, I would say, because you know, Dean Miller and Jasmine and I are, are used to meeting in Dean Miller's office and, you know, going over what we think, what our next steps are, things like that, and really having um, a really productive think tank. But we weren't able to do that because of COVID. So we were all remote, which was difficult. Um, I know my research specifically was focused on no-knock warrants and um, how they disproportionately affect black and brown communities in America and um, just the the lack of diligence and oversight in signing these warrants and how so many regular search warrants become no-knock warrants um, essentially by flukes and mistakes that should never happen. So I'm not sure... Um, if any other information was uncovered as we were we were doing this work, just because my specific research was focused on the no-knock warrant issues. Jasmine, what about you? So just generally for, again, law students or lawyers who have no idea about criminal law, no-knock warrants, can you tell us about them and essentially how did they play into this case? Um, and, you know, how, how, how did it impact kind of how we got to the end, and then we'll get to uh, the tremendous changes that y'all were able to uh, make. No-knock warrants are when um, law enforcement basically, you know, announce immediately announces themselves and then forcibly enters the home. Um, and like AC, my research was primarily dealing with understanding um, when they occur and the data surrounding them. Um, and that research was very insightful for me. Um, something that I learned was that a significant amount of times there's not, act, there are no drugs that are actually found. 
Um, and so I think that definitely is something that should make us want to take a second look at whether or not you can actually argue that these are justified um, because they're dangerous for both the occupants in the home as well as the police officers. Um, and then there is definitely not enough data that's collected and shared with the public. And so I think that that tends to contribute to the community distrust that we see um, so often surrounding this whole topic um, and law enforcement in general. Um, so we definitely need better oversight so that we can understand, you know, how often are these occurring? For what reasons are they occurring? How are they occurring? Um, and I think that would just help to uh, provide some accountability across the board. And through your research, I, I know one of the infamous kind of no-knock cases that I've heard over the years was one where a flashbang grenade lands in a crib and, oh. and unfortunately, I believe, uh, results in, you know, killing of the baby. And so with, a, I know with the very limited data that you have, the data just wasn't there because they don't want that track. Uh, what was the statistics that y'all come to see as far as the successfulness of no-knock warrants? In other words, warrants that were substantiated versus unsubstantiated as far as the end result? Were you able to, at least based on the limited data that you had, be able to kind of show statistically what kind of the success rate was for seizing illegal activity or, you know, at least in the case of drugs, uh, where they actually were drugs as, as the end result? Yes, we were able to get some federal statistics and statistics out of places like Denver, Utah, and Little Rock. And so it varied from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Anytime they said they were looking for weapons, that was a very low percentage of actual searches that turned up weapons. With drugs, it kind of varied depending upon whether it was SWAT or whether it was a state entity that was doing it. But it was sort of hovering around 50%, um, so certainly much lower than you would expect. Yeah, I mean, so basically flip a coin, whether they're just kicking in a person's door and possibly, you know, resulting in the horrible set of facts that we have in Breonna Taylor's case, flip a coin, whether, you know, it's a wholly uh, unwarranted search and seizure for that matter, at least just a search. Right. And something else that um, struck me was that, you know, while weapons have a much lower percentage of um when they actually found them um, with no-knock warrants. Weapons, okay, that's that's something that's understandable that you may need a no-knock warrant for, but drugs, you're not at risk. Of, the police officers are not at risk of losing their life because somebody has drugs in their apartment. I know that there can be an issue of disposing of the evidence if police knock and announce, um, like flushing down the toilet or something, but I think that losing some evidence is worth saving lives. Kind of going in the same vein statistics-wise, were y'all able to see whether no-knock warrants have been targeted to a specific race? You know, whether it was disproportionately uh, no-knock warrants were essentially executed on uh, pri primarily minorities? So that was something um, from my research that I found that no-knock warrants are disproportionately used in communities of color as opposed to majority white communities. And um, for majority white communities, a search warrant is, is a search warrant. Um, it is not turned into a no-knock warrant. But when search warrants are executed 
in black and brown communities, they're often transformed into no knock warrants just with a, with a simple judge's signature. Um, and it, it happens much, much more, more so in communities of color than it does in majority white communities. One of the interesting things that I've, I took from y'all's story is, you know, you all were doing this in South Carolina where it seemed like daily there was a different protest to the very case that you all were researching. And then meanwhile, I didn't know. I mean, I'm sure you and your families knew and obviously, uh, but no one knew that people from South Carolina were working on this case. Right. Jack, how did y'all deal with kind of the public scrutiny, you know, that was going on to this case that y'all were dealing with? Um, well, I personally just felt like it made it that much more important because we're living through a time right now where, you know, racial issues are being highlighted in this country. And you so often see people that look like Breonna Taylor who, um, you know, end up victims of police brutality. Um, and so it just made it so much more important to ensure that Breonna Taylor wasn't just another name that was, you know, swept under the rug. And it was really important for me because I felt like this, you know, hit so close to home. This could have been me. This could have been my sister. This could have been my mom. Um, and so it just, I don't know, I was, it just made it, you know, very imperative and just, it felt personal. You know, we talk about the doing it with all the national scrutiny, especially my question is just, obviously y'all were, may have been privy to some information we may or may not know on this podcast or may the general public may or may not be aware. But within the last week and a half, this, I feel like a lot has emerged within this case. Not only do we learn about the civil settlement, but we get the videos that Vice found um, and released, which show the conduct of the officers immediately following the shooting, not um, because, as I understand it, the responding officers say they don't have body cams, but we have that follow-up, what essentially is their sled investigative unit that arrives on scene. We still have these officers who fired the shots just kind of walking around. So we've got those videos coming out. And then we also have the issues with the grand jury failure to indictments and the charges that did ultimately only come down from that case, from that issue. So I just want to know from y'all doing this at this research and then sitting back and seeing all of this come forward, you know, what were your thoughts on the, the information as we are the, the public are getting it. And then we get this grand jury um, information about the, the officers. Um, so when I was working on this case before the settlement was reached and everything, I, I didn't tell anyone that I was working on it um, other than, of course, uh, my colleagues, people with whom I was working on it. But, um, you know, when it was a topic of conversation with people around me, it was so hard not to not to jump in and say, well, that's not correct. And, you know, things like that. And probably the hardest part for me is um, my uncle. He's very conservative and he goes off on these rants. And one day he was like, yeah, and they're riding in Louisville. And you know, I mean, she shouldn't have been dating a drug dealer. What do you expect? Like just horrible things that right. weren't true. Right. All, like just it, false information that he's spewing. And, you know, it took everything in me not to be like, 
Can you shut up, man? <laughs> right. Professor Miller, at what point did you all know that you had made this impact? I mean, obviously, I'm sure one of the lawyers said, hey, by the way, we're, this worked out. But at what stage of the process, you know, how far before we all knew it did y'all know? And how did y'all do, what did y'all do to celebrate? <laughs> well, I didn't know until the day of when we got the news from the attorneys and then the media. Um, you know, when I thought we had made a big impact was looking at those cases involving material force, false information on the war. And I know um, Jasmine and I had looked through some of those cases. I think there was a case from D.C. that Jasmine had looked through for me. So that's when I really felt, OK, this this city is going to settle this for sure. Um, so there really wasn't, unfortunately, that moment of celebration. We're not at the law school. We can sort of get together and celebrate. But um, it was certainly nice to, to see that news. And, you know, obviously, it's not going to fill the hole that's left in that family or the community for the loss of Breonna Taylor. But to see not only the $12 million, but also, again, that they're going to have social workers on scene for mental health 911 calls. They're going to have a system to weed out and have notification of bad officers it's it's nice to see that those reforms going forward prevent this situation from recurring again. And so, I mean, right now that we have the reform put in place and the ripple effect, uh, you know, one of the things because as a criminal defense lawyer, what I'm looking at, and you know, one of the the cases that I've had uh, that was successful arguing at the South Carolina Supreme Court dealt with that issue. So, I mean, this case really kind of turned on the fact that inside the search warrant affidavit there was a lie that ultimately was a significant fact that would have been an issue as far as determining whether there was probable cause to, you know, for to sign the search warrant for it to be executed for the issuance of the search warrant uh, that was related to directly the findings and the case law that was found through you and your team's research. I mean, that's just amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's, you know, it's great in this case that that facilitated the settlement. It's terrible that in any number of other cases where there's a very tenuous claim to probable cause, there's a no-knock warrant in the middle of the night and people are shot and killed, those cases, they don't get relief. And so, uh, you know, obviously a lot of injustice here, but it was at least nice that they were able to get some type of settlement here for the family. Right. I mean, it just takes an extraordinary situation where you had the Postal Service be able to support and have that corroboration that it was, you know, not just a misrepresentation, but a lie. In my case, it took the officer actually testifying under oath and he admitted he lied, that that wasn't the information. But how many times is that going to happen? We had a very rare circumstance in that in that case where an officer admitted under oath that he had provided, you know, the essentially the incorrect information in the warrant. And outside of that, I mean, it's such a limited basis. You're right. I mean, it just takes an extraordinary circumstance to be able to prove to prove that fact. And that's why we're starting to see these bans on no-knock warrants, including here in South Carolina, our state Supreme Court during this put in this moratorium on no-knock warrants. And that's part of a nationwide push. And so hopefully in the next few years, we won't see any more no-knock warrants in this country. And that's what I was getting ready to um, bring up. You know, they, the city of Louisville passed a ban because of y'all's efforts. Um, and it's been kind of going like wildfire. So, you know, I, I know y'all are, two of y'all are law students. So y'all have a, uh, 
um, some resumes to fill out for jobs. But I feel yeah. like starting a national, uh, you know, movement probably looks really well on those uh, resumes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miller, long overdue. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Professor Miller, this is kind of your bread and butter, you know, talking about, you know, wrongful conviction cases and, you know, trying to get the facts out of there. You know, for people who haven't heard your podcast, and I'm probably sure there's only like 12 people out there, um, can you tell us about the Undisclosed podcast? What made you start it? What have y'all kind of a primer on that show as opposed to, uh, you know, what you do in your day job, maybe? Yeah, so in 2014, there was a podcast called Serial, very popular. It was about a high school student in Baltimore, Maryland, who was accused of murdering his ex-girlfriend back in 1999. I started blogging about the case in my blog, and the sister of Adnan Syed, who was the subject of that podcast, reached out, and we decided, let's do our own podcast about Adnan's case. And that led to Innocence Projects and attorneys reaching out and saying, we have wrongfully convicted individuals can you investigate and report on their cases? And so basically that's what Undisclosed is, is we have people reach out who say someone's wrongfully convicted, we investigate their case, we talk to the witnesses, we speak to the person in prison and hear their story, and we try to make a case for a court or a conviction integrity unit or a governor to grant some type of relief to a person we believe is wrongfully convicted. Well, and I mean, specifically kind of go into the, the catalyst that, that made Undisclosed Podcast. I mean, it's a, it's a international uh, sensation. I mean, we're, we're in the midst of a celebrity here. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, and look, in, in our world, you, I mean, all the accolades are, are warranted. The podcast is, is outstanding and the amount of investigative work is, is certainly incredible. Going to Adnan Saeed's case, since that, that was kind of the, you know, the one that started it all. Uh, ultimately, you know, a lot of people who have either listened to Serial or watched the documentary that was on HBO. Yep. What are the things about that case? And I, I'd actually like to take a step back with Breonna Taylor's case as well. So for, for both cases, what are some of the facts in Breonna Taylor's case, as well as Adnan's case, that the, the general public who does follow this, not not somebody that's not aware of it, but the general public who has followed it and who, who has seen these cases and knows more than the average person, what are some of the things that you believe they should know about those two cases that is not necessarily have been pushed as far as uh, what you would want to be seen about, what, you know, what are the couple of turning points in these cases that the, the public that is at least aware, they don't know, but you would love for them to know so they could see this case from a different lens? Yeah, so first with regard to Breonna Taylor, for those who watched the Attorney General of Kentucky in his press conference, his claim that justified the use of force by the officers was there was this neighbor who corroborated the police officers' claims that despite the fact that this was a no-knock warrant, these officers decided to knock and announce their presence. What he didn't say is, and I think it's up to 13 now, it's around 12 or 13 neighbors, including the next door neighbor in the very next apartment. They all said there was no knock, there was no announcement. And so for the attorney general to frame this as this has been corroborated, and the one witness changed his story. His initial story was they didn't knock and announce. He changed his story, I think, two months later. So that is certainly the, the misconception that I would like to clear up with regard to Brianna Taylor. Uh, in terms of the Adnan Syed case, um, for people who might have listened to Serial but not Undisclosed, um, 
sort of the key evidence there is that his alleged accomplice, Adnan Sayed's alleged accomplice, Jay Wilde, says we were burying the victim's body in Lincoln Park in Baltimore in the seven o'clock hour. And that's, according to this state, corroborated by these cell tower pings at 7.09 and 7.16 p.m. What our team uncovered was there was a disclaimer with the cell tower records that said outgoing calls only are to be used for location status, incoming calls are not. And both of these pings in the 7 o'clock hour were incoming calls. The issue with AT&T at the time was sometimes the tower pinged was the caller's phone. Sometimes it was the person who was making the call, not the person receiving the call. And so you have cases where accounting for time zone, there's a call on a murder case pinging a tower in Northern California and minutes later in Hawaii. And so that's the basis for our new appeal that will be coming either later this year or early next year is that defense counsel did not use this disclaimer to attack those cell tower pings in the case. The current season of Undisclosed is about John Brookins. Um, can you give a just a little primer about that case and tell us about the work that you're doing and the research that you're all doing when it comes to John Brookins? John Brookins is probably the nicest person I've ever met in my life. He teaches meditation and yoga to fellow inmates who have Parkinson's, MS, and cancer. He just has a huge heart. In 1990 in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, he was accused of the murder of Sheila Ginsburg. His claim is, I came to Sheila Ginsburg's apartment. I saw her daughter, Sharon, fatally stabbing her with a pair of scissors. I tried to help. I'm an African-American man. This is a Caucasian victim. I started to call 911. I saw the daughter had left the apartment. I realized the reality of my situation. If I'm calling 911 and the police come, they're going to think I committed this crime. And so he is eventually convicted and has been in prison for almost 30 years. We have multiple witnesses who say the daughter has confessed. We have people who saw her in the parking lot around the time of the murder with bloody hands. We're seeking DNA testing of crime scene evidence that could implicate the daughter in the crime. And so we're making a big push. The Board of Pardons in Pennsylvania could pardon John Brookins, and the DNA testing could also prove his innocence. I know that the answer to this question is money, but it seems like it would be very helpful if the attorneys who originally had these cases, you know, had the resources and the time and everything else to go for. When you're talking to students, what are you telling them as far as, hey, this is what the realities are of going into criminal defense work? And Dane, I'm sure you have some opinions on this as well. Because again, if you're representing the people who have the least, you probably are working with the least amount of resources compared to other folks. Yeah, I mean, this is something I've done some work at public defender's offices and legal aid. And, you know, many listeners might have heard of the meet and plead, right, where the attorney literally meets the client and the plea deal is struck within a matter of minutes. And it's just, you know, public defenders are overburdened. They have hundreds of cases in many jurisdictions. They have very limited resources to get experts, very limited time to handle each case. 
And so certainly I, I teach in my classes the reality that we're in a system of pleas. 95% of cases that reach a verdict are the result of a plea. And that's largely because underfunded public defenders don't have the time to fully litigate these cases. Right. It, I mean, and just the mountain of systemic issues that go with uh, wrongful convictions, when you're looking at the Innocence Project, you know, they've narrowed it down to uh, kind of, you know, I think it's generally the five factors of either ineffective assistance of counsel, kind of the exact thing we were just talking about where a lawyer doesn't uh, provide. So under the Sixth Amendment, you're you're guaranteed a right to have an effective assistance of counsel. And so when a lawyer doesn't do their job properly, that's an avenue to try to seek relief, which is what we were just discussing for the, those listening. But also you have, you know, eyewitness misidentification, prosecutor, police misconduct. You have junk science. In other words, uh, just all the different types of issues that can either be through expert witnesses uh, testifying to science that's not reliable or accurate. And again, you have false confession cases. And so anybody that's interested, there's so many great resources that are out there and undisclosed podcast and your uh, your blog, the Evidence Prof blog, is a great place to start and learn, and of course, anything from the Innocence Project, the national organization is kind of, you know, that's the uh, the epitome. That's the that's the top of the heap that what's out there is, is great. And, you know, as many people we can get to join the army of, of fighting for uh, these cases, I, you know, I, I, I was bit by the bug early. Uh, and so was, was able within, you know, really right out of the first year, first year of being a lawyer dealt with an innocence case and was able to have an exoneration. And so. I'm all in, and you, you know, I don't I think once you once you see it, you can't you can't turn away from it. You gotta you gotta press on. Absolutely true. And both AC and Jasmine have gotten the chance in law school to work on innocence cases. And Jasmine and I actually right now, I mentioned the John Brookins case. There's a very similar case out of Tennessee, the Purvis Payne case. Uh, Jasmine, do you want to share a bit about that case? Yeah, so Purvis Payne, um, this was a case, I think it, it was in the 80s, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he was waiting for his girlfriend to come home um, one weekend, and um, across, he came back and forth to the apartment throughout the day because he didn't have a cell phone to communicate with the girlfriend. And um, at one point, um, around 3 o'clock, there were screams and a commotion coming from the apartment across from his girlfriend's apartment. Um, he said that, you know, someone ran past him down the steps, some things dropped. Um, he went in, announced that he was coming in to help and see what was going on. And um, a victim had been stabbed um, and her two children had also been stabbed. Um, unfortunately, the lady and her daughter didn't make it, but the son did survive. Um, and when the police arrived, Purvis kind of, you know, freaked out because, you know, it didn't look the best that he was there and had blood all over him. And, you know, as anyone probably would in such a scary situation. So he, uh, freaked out and he ran. And, and so it's a, a wrongful conviction case, and we're trying to see if um, some more DNA testing will be done um, to kind of show that maybe a third party was involved in Clear Purpose's name. So my question uh, then for Jasmine and AC 
has this experience altered or changed kind of what you want to do after law school or is has this impacted is it maybe go more towards criminal or more away from criminal as a result of this i'm curious jasmine we'll start with you um, I think for me, it's definitely drawn me more to criminal. Uh, coming into law school, criminal law wasn't the route that I thought I was going to go. And, you know, while I'm still undecided, um, the more that I work with Dean Miller, the more that I understand that we are dealing with a flawed system and there are a lot of injustices that still exist. Um, and so it was public service that was attractive to me to pursue law. And so, um, it's, you know, cases like Brianna's and cases like Purvis's, Purvis's that um, are really like solidifying that I am where I'm supposed to be. And, you know, maybe criminal law is the route that I want to take. What about you, AC? So for me, I initially thought that I wanted to practice criminal law. I have a degree in criminology and criminal justice from USC. but after my first year of law school, I um, started going more towards the environmental law route, which I'm still really passionate about. I'm in the environmental law clinic, and I really enjoy it. But, you know, this case and other cases that I've been working on with Dean Miller have drawn me back towards criminal law. And I think, you know, as I finish out my last year of law school, um, you know, as, as you know, I'm going to be a law clerk for two years. But after that, I think I want to do appellate advocacy um, in all areas of law. But I would love, love, love to focus on appellate criminal um, oral arguments and, and brief writing and things like that. Uh, I think it's something that I'm really passionate about and that I would really enjoy. By the way, you stole my question. I was gonna, <laughs> I was gonna ask that because I remember our first start using the uh, chat feature more on these. We'll have to come we up should. with because when we had AC a, a year ago, I remember environmental law right. being that. And I follow you on Twitter. By the way, I love the turtle rehabilitations. Oh my gosh, thank um, you. They fill me with such joy because I will pull my car over to the side of the road and grab a turtle. I actually pulled up to Moore Taylor one day with three box three um, pond turtles who I caught, I caught on 378 on the way to court and um, I had to go release them near our office. I even took them inside and showed Jake Jr. and oh my <laughs> released them in the neighborhood behind Moore Taylor. Oh, <laughs> they hissed at me. They were really mean, but they were <laughs> big. Um, okay. So the last part of our podcast, how we conclude is war stories. Previously, I think in the previous seasons, we had, if you weren't a lawyer, what would you do? Um, but now we've, we've gone to war stories. So, Professor Miller, we'll start with you. And it, we, Joseph said from the beginning, it can be law school. It can be your work on the undisclosed pod. It can be anything. We're not going to limit you. So, if you yeah. have more than one, feel free. <laughs> Just let it rip. And then when you're done, we'll, we'll get to the ladies. Yeah, well, this is actually a case I worked on with AC and some of her research we hope is going to free an innocent woman. So Pam and Doran Lanier were turkey farmers in Chincapin, North Carolina. Doran is in a tractor accident. He's bedridden. He's not doing well. He starts turning yellow. He passes away. It's determined he died from arsenic poisoning. State claims Pam Lanier, his wife, poisoned him with arsenic to get his life insurance policy. 
our alternate theory we developed was they had turkey medication called 3-nitro that they would give to the turkeys on the farm, and it had arsenic in it. And the state's claim was this arsenic wasn't dangerous to human beings. Uh, we tracked down researchers from Johns Hopkins and other areas who got this turkey medication banned because it was found, in fact, this arsenic could and it did cause damage and death to human beings. And so that's part of our current appeal. Um, the state's theory of the case was that Pamela Neer was a black widow and had killed not only Doran, but her prior husband, Johnny Ray. They lived in uh, Surf City, North Carolina. He was checking a crab pot, fell into the intercoastal waterway and drowned. And the state had him exhumed after Doran Lanier died to test him again for arsenic. And the test results that I had AC review showed he didn't have a heightened level of arsenic except for in his hair. And so they use this under the doctrine of chances, this obscure evidentiary doctrine to claim, what are the odds this woman has two separate husbands die with elevated arsenic levels? But AC and looking through the records and passing along to me, and I was looking through the numbers and saying, well, wait a second, you have the exact same number in the arsenic level for Johnny Ray's hair as you did for Doran's hair, is it possible they transpose those numbers? Turns out, went to the medical examiner, and yes, Johnny Ray did not have elevated arsenic in his hair. They transposed the number from Doran's autopsy to Johnny Ray's. And so both for these experts on the turkey medication and for the error with the uh, arsenic in the case, uh, we're working with Wake Forest and their Innocence Project, and hopefully Pam will be granted a new trial within the next year. That's really cool. And I just want everybody listening, when I was in law school, I seem to remember like rule against perpetuities. <laughs> I wasn't doing, you know, poison, arsenic in air. Man, law school is different back when, back when we were there. Sorry. Back in the day. That's, can, that's just total side note. We can do a sl slow clap on that one. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, Jasmine, AC, what about y'all? We'll start with you, Jasmine. Oh, gosh. I don't think I have a war story um, that Amber met, uh, mentioned when she said, what would you be if you weren't going to be a lawyer? That works, um, dude. Yeah, I think I would have done nursing. That was actually like the first. That was the goal. That was the plan. Um, I did an internship my senior year of high school. Um, but I'm just not great with blood, but maybe I would have just stuck it out. Um, but it wasn't until later on that I decided I wanted to pursue law. So I wasn't one that grew up and knew that this is what I wanted to do. Casey, what about you? If I wasn't in law school and about to be an attorney, I would definitely be a national park ranger that I wanted. I've wanted to be that since like <laughs> middle school. Um, and one L year, right? <laughs> one L year, I was so convinced that I was going to fail out. I, I, I knew I was going to fail out of law school. I just knew that there was no way I'd be coming back. Um, and I looked into how to become a national park ranger and I was ready to do it. Got my grades back. They weren't great. They weren't terrible. So, you know, aren't you on law review? You weren't where Joseph and I were hanging out. Yeah, I was about to show you. Class ranks the original name for this podcast was Almost Failed One of so, <laughs> Like, one, you are one of us, but two, come on. I feel yeah. like it's a little. 
We're still like we talked about this in the last episode. We're still surprised we're lawyers, right? We're like a decade in and still like, oh wow, this is. I wonder all the time who I faked out, like who. Yeah. (laughs) Every every third month, we all get together as a uh, podcast and check the bar's website to make sure that (laughs) (laughs) they have the no take backs. You can't (laughs) take it back. Guys, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Um, and honestly, just thank you for the work that you've done with this case. And it, it, I know that you all have gotten uh, some notoriety and fame uh, locally for it, but I don't think it's enough. So it, if you see these individuals or if these individuals' uh, resumes come across your desk, hire them, give them a lot of money um, for the uh, work that they have uh, done. Uh, you can obviously uh, follow Professor Miller at Evidence Prof- Evidence Prof on Twitter. That's Evidence P-R-O-F on Twitter. You can also find there a link to his Evidence Prof blog. And I've looked at it. And as somebody who has forgotten a lot of evidence, I remembered a lot more when I read that uh, blog. So he's a must follow if you are uh, either are interested in that or need to learn more like me. Uh, you can also follow uh, the Undisclosed podcast at Undisclosed Pod on Twitter. That podcast is available wherever you heard this show. Give it a follow, check it out, and follow along uh, with the current season with John Brookins. Uh, Jasmine is available at Jazz, J-A-S underscore Carruthers. And AC has a private account, but if you want to ask to see these turtle pictures, you can follow her at AC underscore Parum Parum. Parum uh, to uh, make sure that you can see the park ranger slash uh, lawyer to be. Uh, guys, thank you so much for taking some time for us this evening, and thank you again for the work that you've done. You want to follow the podcast? You can follow us at SC Law Pod. We're available on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. I forget. Yes, we, Instagram. We have an Instagram. We put things on it. I tagged us. Yes. I tagged us today when I shared. Uh, this past Dane, Dane's probably the best about. I, hey, I, wait, wait! You got to do that whole like, share, and subscribe, right? Yeah, like, share, the <laughs> like, share, and subscribe. Get down here on the uh, on the bell button so you know when the notifications. I watch YouTube. I know what's up. Yeah, you. Uh, yeah, there it is. Oh, AC wants us to know. By the way, you can also follow her on Instagram at AC Param. <laughs> uh, AC underscore Param. Uh, Jasmine's also yeah, on Instagram. Too. See, the kids today with their social medias, um, Amber is going to start off uh, the uh, uh, direct examination podcast TikTok. That's going to be coming soon. Oh, God, no. This body is not ready for a video. As long as we're doing from like here up, fine. (laughs) But you can see us on Facebook if you're old, Twitter if you're middle age, and Instagram if you're young. Uh, TikTok to come when Evie learns how to uh, uh, rock that. But you mm-hmm. can uh, follow Amber on Twitter at Red Judicata, Dane at SC Crim Lawyer, and me at Joseph P. Bios um, on Twitter. Uh, guys, I miss anything? Like, share, and subscribe. Like, yeah, share, like, share, and subscribe. Give us a five-star review, too. I, exactly. Review us. We're the we, need, we need more five-star reviews. And um, for if you're an attorney and give us a five-star review, we will shout you out on this podcast, and we will send it your way. No, there's no shame. All right. So for our wonderful guests, uh, nothing but illustrious guests, more illustrious Mm -hmm. this week for my uh, intrepid co-host. Thank you so much for listening to Direct Examination Podcast, and we will see you next week. Thank you. See y'all later. Bye.